everyone. I'm Kelsey Snow, and this is Sorry, I'm Sad, a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. In 2019, my husband, Chris, was diagnosed with aggressive progressing ALS and given six to 12 months to live. He was 37 years old at the time. I was 35. Our kids were seven and four. We knew the lifespan the doctor gave him was accurate because Chris's dad had died of ALS not even a year earlier, nine months after his diagnosis. We'd also lost two of his uncles, both within nine months of diagnosis, and his 28-year-old cousin, 18 months after diagnosis. Most ALS is sporadic, meaning there's no family history, but 10 to 15% is passed down from one generation to another, and that's the kind that has decimated our family. Two years after Chris's ALS diagnosis, he's lost the ability to smile, swallow most foods, make facial expressions, and use his right hand. His voice has changed as a result of atrophied facial muscles, and he takes most of his calories through a feeding tube. But thanks to some amazing science, a very promising clinical trial, and a whole lot of luck, he is still very much here and alive. I'm a former journalist. I covered Major League Baseball for five years for the St. Paul Pioneer Press in Minnesota, and I've also written for the Boston Globe, the Los Angeles Times, and Sports Illustrated. Almost immediately after Chris was diagnosed, I realized that writing was how I would process all of these very big emotions that I was going through. After we went public with Chris's diagnosis, I started telling our story on my blog, which you can find at kelseysnowrights.com. The more I wrote about my own sadness and grief, the more messages I got from people telling me their stories, saying things like, your words are what I feel but haven't been able to say. And the more messages I got, the more convinced I became that we need more spaces to share our stories of sadness and of resilience. I created this podcast to offer just that, a communal space for all the grievers out there. And really, isn't that all of us? Whether your sadness has been caused by a profound loss or traumatic event, or whether, like so many of us, you deal with the ups and downs of even mild depression and anxiety, or if, like everyone in the world, your last year and a half has just felt so hard. Sorry I'm Sad is a place for us to tap into the deepest, most personal parts of our collective humanity. This podcast and my blog are both a labor of love, and I mean that literally, From writing posts to finding guests and researching topics to preparing interviews and recording and editing all the audio myself, a great deal of my time and energy and love go into each episode. So if you value this podcast or my blog and you want to support these things, you can go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow and become a member. I'm thrilled to have Emmy award-winning journalist and New York Times best-selling author Kate Fagan join me for this conversation. Kate's most recent book is called All the Colors Came Out, and it's a memoir about her relationship with her dad, Chris. It's about the bond they forged on the basketball court, the life lessons that he instilled there, and about the distance that can come from growing up. It's about what matters in life, and it's about ALS. Kate's dad, Chris, died of ALS at the end of 2019, and about a year before that, Kate quit her high-profile job at ESPN to move home and help her mom and her sister take care of Chris as his disease progressed. Chris died shortly before the world came to a halt because of COVID-19, and Kate ended up spending all that time stuck at home writing about her relationship with him, about all the lessons he left behind and all the ways an illness like ALS forces us to reckon with our past. Kate is a phenomenal writer who tells important stories, and she has also become a staunch and important advocate in the ALS community. We ended up having so much to talk about that when Kate had to run to an appointment well into our first conversation, we decided to have another. 
So look for a special bonus episode coming out next week that will include more very honest talk about relationships, about the nitty gritty of ALS, about the hard decisions ALS families have to make, and about the guilt and second guessing that can remain in the wake of those decisions. All the Colors Came Out is a beautiful love story, and I can't think of a better episode to air with Father's Day coming up on Sunday. So I hope you enjoy this first part of my conversation with Kate about the impact dads have on their daughters, about making amends, about the importance of telling the people we love what's on our hearts, and about advocacy. Then, when you're done listening, go buy All the Colors Came Out. And actually, if you're lucky enough to still have your dad around, buy two and give him one for Father's Day. Well, first of all, I really want to thank you for for writing this book. I think for a lot of reasons, I found it very relatable. Um, I grew up in a town of 900 people in South Dakota. And my dad played high school basketball and he, he loved basketball, like loved it. And he played a little bit of college basketball. I didn't love basketball as much as he loved basketball, but I was good for the town that I grew up in, which just didn't mean much because I grew up in a town of 900 people. Yeah. Um, but he was a farmer. He's retired now. And we lived about 10 miles away from the farm that he grew up on. He bought it from, from my grandpa and he farmed it. And so every night I would wait for him to get home and he would pull up in his 1976, like beat up Chevy pickup. And he would just be like covered in dirt and I'm sure just completely exhausted, but he always would play. We, we didn't usually play one-on-one, but we played 21 and every yeah. night he'd open a Miller light, put it on the hood of the truck and we'd play. And I, I mean, I, he was definitely never the one who was like, let's go inside. <laughs> he would have kept right. playing and kept playing. Um, and he never, ever let me win. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we do have a lot <laughs> yeah, in common. Yes. And, you know, I wondered that the book in itself is all about life lessons. And that's a pretty big one right there. And I wondered what that taught you. It, it's actually turned out to be more profound than I thought it was. And sometimes it rears its head in ways that are almost confrontational because there there are people and our lives now, my my wife and I, family members who don't subscribe to that same (laughs) theory. And I'll go and play with their kids. I remember distinctly playing, you know, uh, basketball in a pool with, with some kids and like, I'm not mean about it. I'm not going to like hold their heads underwater and like (laughs) ferociously like pool dunk on them. But if I'm capable of winning the game, I will make sure that the end result is that I won because I don't think that anyone should be walking away from something with a, with a false sense of confidence. And that's definitely why I think it's important. And what I got from it was I never in my life growing up as a kid with my, with my dad, was I allowed to have a false sense of confidence? Mm -hmm. And so and I think the thing that that did for me was that when I did get confidence about something, it was earned and I trusted in it. And then therefore throughout my life, when I have a very strong sense of self and confidence, because I never, I never had an experience where someone like, let's say my dad let me win or my family tried to tell me I am better than I am at X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. If, if that does happen, then you, you inevitably get to a point where that balloon is punctured. Yes. And then you don't, there's a level of trust that you lose in yourself. Because you're like, well, I guess I can't really trust in what people tell me and and how I'm seeing myself because hmm, it's not actually applicable to the world. And so yeah. that singular lesson, which could seem ruthless, yeah, 
actually gave me more confidence in my life than if it had been inverted, which is, which is odd considering if you let someone win, you think you're building their confidence. So, yeah. so it, it, and it doesn't actually, in my experience, it doesn't actually work like that in the long run for the child. If you're letting them win at things. Yeah. And as a parent, I would, I would completely agree with that. Like the, the notion that you have to, that doesn't matter what I think of your picture. <laughs> Do you like your picture? Right. <laughs> that's what yeah. matters. Do you think you did? Did you work hard on it? Are you proud of it? And you know, that's definitely the same message. I think, I think the last, one of the last times I played 21 with my, or played one-on-one with my dad, I think he just knocked me flat on my ass. Like he blocked a shot <laughs> and just knocked me. And I was like, I'm almost an adult here <laughs> and you're still doing this. <laughs> yeah. But yes, yeah. I mean, it was, it, it really, it set a tone for what you expected out of relationships and out of um, your job and all of that. And, and uh, it's something that I struggle with now as a parent, because that's where I think we're coming back around to not giving everybody a medal and all of that, but yeah, it's been, yeah. it's been a rough go. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's definitely culturally has has shifted. And yeah. that's what I've seen at times when I've, we don't need to linger on this particular point that long, but I have seen it when I'm engaging with nieces and nephews and friends, yeah. kids, their shock that I'm not following whatever pattern they've set. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I'm sorry, I, I'm not, even if I'm in your space, I'm not, I don't have to adhere to that particular sensibility. I'm here as me. Yeah, and exactly. if I can, if I can kindly defeat your child at something, I will. <laughs> I will kindly defeat your child at something. You won't like rub it in their face too much, but a little. Not much. Just a little yeah. bit of dirt in their face. No. <laughs> totally. So I think when I picked up your book, um, I really kind of expected that you and your dad had had this big falling out at some point. And one of the things that I found mm. really relatable is that that wasn't the case. That really it was about just kind of growing up and growing apart. And I think that's something that a lot of people can, can really relate to. And the other thing that I found interesting is that, and that you felt this, even though like your dad called you multiple times a day, you guys like mm-hmm. from the outside looked extraordinarily close, but you really felt this distance between you. And, and I think the way that you wrote it is that he felt it too. And I wonder what you think really caused that. I, I think like, like you said at the outset there, I think it was small decisions that I made and reactions that he had later small would seem like small decisions that he made that would have either kept us close and allowed us to stay in each other's presence in a more vulnerable way or gave us permission to slightly veer paths and gave us permission to not engage with with the real emotions of decisions we made and that seems a little um uh, like nebulous as i'm saying it because there were like concrete decisions that I write about in the book. Like my decision to go far away for college really hampered our relationship. Now, do I think that that was a quote unquote wrong decision? No, but I do think that we should have been more honest with each other in the moment so that we could have hashed it out and he could have gotten through his disappointment and expressed it. Mm -hmm. And then we could have, maintained a level of of closeness. And I think that that single example of my decision to go away to college, his disappointment in that, me not recognizing his disappointment, him not articulating it, there were probably a half dozen more decisions like that. Mm-hmm. Not not I think in the in the movie version of this, it's some explosive moment, Kelsey, yeah. as you as you said in the beginning, right? Whether it's 
you know, so, someone, um, you know, storming off at a wedding or something or yeah. not, it, not, I think most relationships, you know, if there's come, if they're coming from some semblance of a loving nuclear family, what I hope the book, uh, what I hope the book relates to people is that it's, it's unavoidable that your relationship is going to get dented and bent and, and that it's, it's those like natural relationships that life dings along the way that I think there's millions of people out there who feel that with, whether it's with a, a parent or a parent in relation to a child. And because it's not some like splashy dramatic event that absolutely needs to be fixed that you kind of just think, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna talk about those things. I'm not gonna bring them up. And so for my relationship with my dad, it, it did get to this place where we talked all the time. I mean, all the time, more, he, you know, he called me two to three times a day, more than I needed him to be calling me. <laughs> um, but nothing was ever really said. Very rarely was anything ever said. And so, and I think, I think, that, I think there's something very relatable in that for people mm-hmm. because you, you don't know something's wrong. Each of you have this sense that something could be better, but because it's not dramatic, you're not sure if you're right. You're not sure if it's a real thing or if you're just convincing yourself that it's a thing. And that was very much a portrait of, of, of how the relationship with me and my dad went. Yeah. And I think that like what you said, because those things are almost these little tiny, like, you know, microcosms of, of space, they just keep gradually building up and up and up until all of a sudden there's this larger amount of space and all those conversations that could have taken away those small slivers of that space. Now they've, they've become so big because you've let all those things happen. Right. And there's, it feels like too big of kind of a gap. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I wondered, you know, if that is kind of the, why it ended up being so hard to kind of get to the heart of the, this conversation that you wanted to have with your dad was like, I think in our heads, we just psych ourselves out about having them. Yeah. And then they become too overwhelming. No, I think that, that observation you made about the slight degree of difference. And then over time it becomes a gulf. Mm-hmm. And then whatever in the beginning, whatever distance you could have cleared, right. It's mm-hmm. like, it's not that long of a dif- dif- distance. So you're, so you probably could have had the conversation and it wouldn't have seemed that scary. Mm-hmm. Like you, I, going back to my decision to go away for, for college, like, this is my representation of like kind of a turning point, but for other people, it could be any number of things. I, I don't know that I would have had this like huge emotional um, reaction if I was going to talk to my dad when I'm 18 and say, Hey dad, I decided to do this. And like, I'm, I'm sorry. That's just who I am. And I want this, you know, that wouldn't have scared me so much, but to do that 15 years later, yeah. 15 years of angst, 15 years of yeah. thinking about what he might say, 15 years of psyching yourself up. I mean, when it comes to relationships, that's a chasm, almost mm-hmm. uncrossable. And I think many people can can relate to that. Like you couldn't really say what the thing is, but you know that you've reached this place where it's terrifying you yeah. to try to cross it. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you wrote about early on in your book, um, I don't know if you at all are familiar with the relationship expert, the John Gottman, but he writes a lot about like bids for a connection. And I really thought about that in the way that your dad did the thing with the sneakers. That was like his way of kind of putting it out there that he needed to connect with you. And I wonder if you can talk about what sneakers spent to you guys. Oh, 
Kelsey, anytime someone wants me to talk about sneakers, I'm I've, I've gotten that sneakers. impression. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so when, when I was, when I was a little kid and I think a lot of people can relate to this, maybe, maybe um, like nineties kids, you know, it's like Michael Jordan's at his height and the Jordans are culturally so cool still, but then especially, yeah. and my dad would get me one pair of sneakers a year. Because, you know, we we had enough resources, but we didn't have an overflow of resources to be able to be buying, you know, three, four or five pairs of sneakers. So I would get my one pair. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night, the, you know, the first couple of days I had them and looking at them. I mean, the stupid things you do as a little kid. I'd wake up and I'd see the little, you know, the Jordan fives or whatever they were. And I'd be like, oh, my God, they're mine. And so and my dad, you know, he played basketball, too. So. I could tell when I made this decision to go far away, it started then and and he kept it for a very long time after even well into my career at ESPN. He would, it was a, it was an olive branch, even though there's nothing really wrong. It was an outreach to me that like probably once a year, he would give me his credit card number and say, buy us a pair of sneakers. And, you know, as I write about in the book, he would very much make this seem like he, like I was doing him a favor. Mm-hmm. even though at the, you know, in the beginning of it, I didn't have much money and you're starting out in a career and Kelsey, you were a reporter. So you know how little you get paid when you're Nothing. 24 <laughs> and you're yeah. a journalist in Podunkville. Yeah. Um, so we started this thing where I would pick him a pair of size 13, whatever I thought was super cool. And I would get myself a pair often the same exact pair, but in my size seven and a half. Mm-hmm. And so it became this bond that we had and that, as I, and it still upsets me to this day that once I started working at like ESPN and I'm making a little bit more money and my dad would say that, you know, like, Hey, buy us a pair. And it was almost like this weird thing where like the 45 minutes of my time that it would take wasn't worth the $120. Right. I mean, it's, it, of course it was more than money and it was more than a transaction, but when you're 29, you're like, dad, I don't have time for that anymore. Mm -hmm. And so and it, and it turned out that what, like right before his diagnose his ALS diagnosis, he had sent me this pair of these red suede, actually in this closet over here, oh. <laughs> these red, red suede Puma low top sneakers of a New York Nick that we had loved. And it was the first time he'd ever gone and picked out a shoe and gotten both our sizes and sent it to me. Mm-hmm. And God, Kelsey, if I don't think those are the ugliest sneakers <laughs> that ever were. And I mean, it, and it, 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 it can't do it. I just couldn't do it. And I, I didn't wear them very much. And of course, then when he got sick and then, you know, more and more sick, those sneakers, wow. They just like lit me up inside because they, they, they represented so much. They represented, you know, basketball, the Knicks growing up, our connection over the years, over basketball, over sneakers. And then of course I didn't like them. Mm -hmm. So then it was like this really dark side for me about, Guilt. certain choices I'd made and, and you're right guilt and I think you know as I write in the book I think it might not be sneakers but you know my wife and my mom would always talk about things small like actual tangible artifacts in their life that when they think about how they behaved around them or somebody's sending them to them as a gift but your reaction isn't what you want or you regret it that it becomes this very explosive emotional mm-hmm. tangible representation of certain dynamics and so those sneakers still in the closet, still see them every day. (laughs) Yeah. And I think one of like, as a mom, so many parts of your book were relatable to me. You know, the relationship with your dad, obviously ALS, 
And then some parts of it, like got my mom feelings going where, where you, you wrote about how like you still look at them and you feel like you can't wear them, not because um, you want to keep them nice, probably a little bit because you don't like them still. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> yeah. But that you look at them every day and they remind you of all the ways that you failed in your relationship. And my heart just broke. And I wonder, I know your dad hasn't been gone that long, but do you still feel that way? Or have you let, like, have you given yourself some grace there? I still feel that way. I think it's getting better because he's been gone now. Pandemic time is weird, right? So because a year and a half has passed just in the pandemic and he died right before the pandemic. So it both feels like not as much time, but I know it's been a year and a half, but um, I, because you, you alluded to it right in your question in that, I'm still partially not wearing them because I think they're ugly. Right. So it's like, you still feel guilty. (laughs) Right. So it's like, until I get over that and because it's still this thing where I'm like, well, I have cooler sneakers and I want to, I want to look, I still want to look cooler that I'm like, oh my God. So it's like, it's still like, I'm almost creating this bubble of regret and, 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 and guilt. Like every day when I look at them, it's like, I'm still helping to feed that energy. Mm -hmm. And that's something I need to work on now that you're saying it out loud. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we all have things. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Um, one of the things that you wrote in your book was that, so you have an older sister or a younger sister? Yeah. Older. Yep. Yeah. Um, is that people would ask your dad oftentimes if he wished he had a boy and I'm the youngest of three girls and people always ask my dad that, and it made him so mad. He hated that Mm -hmm. question. He was always like, no, I do not wish I had different children. I like the children I have. And, you know, when he would say that, I always felt like, oh, I have a good dad, but I don't think I really understood until I became older. And I went into sports journalism without any sort of thought about like, oh, women don't really do this. And then I started covering Major League Baseball, which, you know, I cover Major League Baseball now almost 10 years ago because I stopped right when I, right before I had my son, there weren't a lot of, you know, there still aren't, but in there, and then there weren't a lot of beat writers um, who were, you know, traveling you know, following the team on the road and everything. And I think now about how the way that he approached me really informed like subconsciously what I thought I was capable of. And it never, I just never questioned it. Like I also, my, my mom built furniture, my dad cooked all the meals and he was a farmer. Like my whole idea of gender roles just didn't, they didn't really exist. And for a girl growing up in middle America in a town of 900 people, I now realize that was very weird. (laughs) Not at all normal. And you wrote basically the same thing about your dad. They, our dads didn't know they were doing this. They didn't understand that they were teaching us some lesson about our, our inherent value. It just felt right to them. It just felt like the right thing to do. And I wonder how that shaped your view of how you valued yourself as you grew up and became an adult and went into journalism as well. Yeah. It, it's so much of, it sounds like our, our experiences on that front are very parallel because even it, it was not just my, my dad making clear that he felt that I had the same value as him and everyone else and his willingness to share his passions and not differentiating which passions should be gendered mm-hmm. and which shouldn't. It was, it, he was very much, if I love it, and I'm doing it and you want to be a part of it, then of course you're going to be a a part of it. So right from day one, I, 
it, it was almost strange. I, I just didn't see things as, as gendered as I came to see colleagues, as I came to understand colleagues saw things mm-hmm. because I, similar to you, although it wasn't baseball and God bless you for that because <laughs> a baseball beat writer, I would always look at our beat writers on the baseball beat. And I was like, cause I was on the NBA beat yeah. and that's 82 games. And you all had what? 152? 162. I covered, I covered two yeah. game one sixty threes. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. It's oh, a ridiculously so, long season. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I never going, I never had this trepidation about going into a locker room. I just mm-hmm. never thought of spaces as like, that's a guy's space and that's a girl's space as when it came into the sports world, I obviously respected bathrooms and spaces that were differentiated yeah. for reasons, but otherwise it wasn't unusual to me to be in a room with all guys, whether it was a press box or yeah. a practice or a locker room. And I think all of that, going back to like even our first topic about confidence and self-confidence, all of that, both him not letting me win and him treating me as equal and allowing me to experience the things that he was passionate about all led to a sense of self that became very strong mm-hmm. because I, one, I never I never even, and this shocks me to this day, I did not know the disparagement female athletes faced until I got to ESPN, age 30. Like I didn't And you played college until, basketball. How did yeah, you not see it there? Because there weren't, there wasn't Twitter yet. There wasn't, <laughs> I mean, I certainly, I certainly realized, okay, so, you know, the men are sold out. Mm-hmm. and we have half an arena. Mm-hmm. So I understood. I don't, I mean, it wasn't like I was blind yeah. that more money was in men's sports, but I didn't mm-hmm. know that there was the undercurrent of right. not just less people liking it, but a good section of people actively hating it. Yes. Yeah. That's the part that I missed. And so, and all of that went back to my dad and mm-hmm. it was like every environment I stepped into, it was like men and women who thought, my AAU team, my high school team was valuable and they invested in us, their time, their energy, sometimes their money. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's kind of how I always saw spaces and myself. And just one quick point, because I feel like almost every woman on the planet has read Untamed at this point by Mm -hmm. Glennon Doyle. Mm -hmm. And I, I was talking to, to Abby Wambach for a story I was doing. And she said, and I was like, thankful someone said this. She, she was like, some of us need to be less untamed than others. And she was referring to sometimes female athletes yeah. or people who have had grown up in families with sometimes with dads or whoever it was who didn't instill in them certain gender dynamics that other women were taught, whether it was like your value is through marriage, your value is with a man. Like I just, I loved Untamed the book, but mostly as like I was parachuting in, I didn't, I didn't yeah. feel like I personally needed to be untamed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, I can, I can completely understand that. I think it's interesting when you say about like the, the part about your self-confidence and how much your dad instilled that because really your, your strong sense of self ended up being probably one of the drivers that kept you and your dad from having those conversations that you needed to have, because you were like, I made this decision because it was the right decision for me. And if you have a problem with it, <laughs> you know, yeah. and then you kind of let really those true. things, right. You kind of let those things build. Um, but ultimately you did get to a place where you had that conversation with your dad. And I wonder, you know, 
I think one of the things that was that maybe some people would find surprising is that it was also even quite some time after he had been diagnosed with ALS that it finally it, it finally happened. And I wonder what what it took for you to finally have that conversation. This has been a really interesting lesson for me in understanding about how I mean maybe I work but I think other people will relate to it is that first when he was when he was first diagnosed and I was at ESPN, I had that inner understanding of who my priorities have to shift here. Mm. And it took me first, it took me two years to leave ESPN. And Mm. I think that's not something that we reflect in society that often. Like we see the movie of the the child who hears about the sick parent and it's like that day they're leaving their job and they're going, Mm -hmm. and it's like, like, that's not, it takes a lot of, processing, weighing, should I, shouldn't I, maybe I can manage this, you know, cause you want to keep, you want to, for some reason we are addicted to this priority structure that our society has offered us, right. That achievement yeah. and career are, are the thing. And so it took me a long time, one, to make that decision mm-hmm. to finally make it, even though internally I knew it was, I, it had to happen. And then parallel to that, even before my dad's diagnosis, I had had these pangs of thoughts that, that were telling me, you have got to talk to dad. You have got to clear the air. You've so much, you know, at the time I'm like, you guys have another 30 years possibly together and just make this thing happen. It's so stupid. You know, he's not going to do it. And maybe you, you got to do it. Didn't do it. He gets his ALS diagnosis. Even more, it's rearing its head in my mind. But the, but the thing that I believed that got destroyed by not just ALS, but probably a lot of sicknesses or any position where you find yourself in where like mortality is staring at you is that I had believed that the, the universe would like send a lightning bolt of inspiration and we'd have one two-hour conversation out of nowhere and everything would be crystal perfect with us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's just, that's bullshit. You know, mm-hmm. it's the same, it's the same thing that any creative person tells themselves about writing, say, mm-hmm. I'll just wait until I have <laughs> yeah. that one six month <laughs> period in the, with the cabin in the woods, with the candles yeah. and the spot silence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just, that that's maybe for some people you get that, but for most people you end up realizing, Oh no, I have to chip away at this in the moments that I'm given. And that's what I, that's what I came around to understand when it came to repairing the relationship with my dad was that I needed to chip away at it. And by doing that, I needed to be present for him. I need to put myself in front of him more often. It wasn't going to be one conversation. It was going to be like melting the thaw, thawing, like the frozen that had that had, you know, solidified itself around us. Um, and I think that's something like, I think that's a lesson that can translate pretty easily mm-hmm. to people. I mean, it's hard to put into action, but don't, don't think that you're going to get yeah. the lightning bolt of inspiration and it's going to yeah. all be fixed right away. It's like, sadly, like most things in life, there's no magic bullet. Totally. Yeah. I'm reading right now on um, bird by bird um, by Anne Lamott and, and, Oh Yeah. Yeah. And, and like speaking of being able to relate creative things to this is like, she talks about short assignments and that's such an important thing because, and, and it, you can, you could approach that. Right. And that's kind of what you did by ultimately deciding to leave ESPN, move home and help your mom take care of your dad and your sister. Like 
you were showing up for all these short assignments that maybe yep. got you to that place where you could have that conversation in the car that day, right? Yep. Yep. And thanks for so my mom listens to any podcast I do. Oh. So hi, mom. I'm sure she will <laughs> listen to this. And I always have to reinforce because sometimes like if, if someone hasn't read the book and most people haven't read the book, they think that I went home and like solely cared for my dad. (laughs) And you can imagine that my mom sitting back there who (laughs) had, who had been there all day, every day is like, look at Kate out there. (laughs) She's a glory credit. (laughs) 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 Yeah, no, definitely. And I actually had a day after I finished reading your book where I spent a lot of time like writing and thinking about the amount of pressure that I put on um, myself and on my marriage and on my parenting with Chris's diagnosis, like the amount of pressure that I feel to make everything perfect and to make sure the disease has thoroughly changed me. <laughs> you know, right. um, it was an interesting day for me because I, I didn't kind of expect to have that kind of response to it, um, to what you wrote, but it was good for me to think about because I think that I think I wasn't giving myself enough grace, probably definitely not giving Chris would say, I definitely wasn't giving him enough grace. <laughs> Grace either, (laughs) but it does really, these things lay bare what's important. And I wonder if like, cause when I read about that conversation that you guys ultimately had, what struck me is that like you spent all these years worrying about it and wanting to have it and being scared to have it. And it ultimately just felt really simple, Mm -hmm. like just really full of unconditional love. And, you know, maybe that conversation wouldn't have looked that way if he wasn't sick, but I wonder how you thought his illness and the place you guys were both in life influenced the direction that that conversation took. Well, okay. First, I really want to know when you said that you want to make sure the disease thoroughly changes you, yeah. <laughs> what, what did you mean by that? Yeah. So I think that I've always told Chris since he was diagnosed that the worst thing that could happen in this is that he dies and that we lose him. And the second worst thing that could happen is that we would come out of this, whatever coming out of it looks like, the same as we went into it. Because I think that when these things happen, they do cause just a fundamental reorganization. Or if it's not a reorganization, yeah, I call it a reorganization for me, not 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 like some awakening. I've I'm, you know, I've always had a pretty strong sense of of right and wrong and and what I think is important in life. But I do feel that because of his illness, I feel pressure to, to get it right, whatever that means. And, and so I think that these things change you naturally. And I think sometimes when, first of all, and your mom could relate to this probably more than you could illness in a marriage is not easy. And just like you weren't able to have that conversation with your dad right away and have that lightning bolt, like we still fight about the same shit we always fought about, even though he has this right. And so I think that's one of the ways that, that I, one of the things that I definitely struggle with is having those same disagreements. And I'm like, why, why are we still doing this? This isn't important. Why can't we only focus on the joy and the love? And why are we still bitching at each other about this? And so that's one of the ways. Um, But like fundamentally, you know, what I really want ultimately in this is that when my kids are grown, that they can look back on. And it's one of the reasons why I share the way I share and, and really say like mom and dad had a hard thing happen and I'm really proud of how they dealt with it. 
And so I think that's one of the things for me, but definitely I just don't think it's feasible to think you can go through something like this and have it not change you. And you get to decide how it changes you. Yeah. You know, and I think I'm very careful of that. Like I want to make sure that I'm not kind of, you know, stepping into those, those cracks, those footfalls of how it can change you in a bad way, (laughs) make you better, make you whatever. So that's a very long answer to your question. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, no. It's a good answer. Cause I think that maybe there's something similar to in when, you know, I, I think I had the benefit of my experience with ALS being, I was allowed to be present and sometimes carrying the, the brunt of the caretaking, but oftentimes being allowed to be present for my dad without the brunt of the caretaking. Yeah. And, I, and I was able to both feel the weight of it, but not, but never get to a point where I was truly being crushed by the weight mm-hmm. of the caretaking. Like my mom was at times, mm-hmm. um, but always being allowed to be present for the emotion of it. And I think one thing I don't, I don't regret it, but I, but I, and I, and I allude to it in the book was that I would get very angry when my dad wasn't focused on what he could learn from the disease, yeah. which is a mm-hmm. complete which is a completely different thing to expect from someone physically enduring the disease. But you know, when, when he would say certain things that felt like they were coming from a really bitter, angry place, I had no grace. I had very little grace for him in those moments, which I, I, which I, I mean, I don't know, regret's a really strong word, but I would, you know, I think maybe now I would have, if I could go back, I would urge myself to, give him a little bit more space in those moments. Cause I would pounce. Yeah. You know, I would pounce in those moments. Cause I'm like, I'm so focused. I was always so focused on getting him to a better emotional place, but you can't do that for someone. It's just, it's the same as like getting someone, you know, to recovery or something. It's like, no, yeah. no, no, no. Like no. I, I can't get you to a better emotional place. I think that's called codependency <laughs> You know, when you think you can. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was just I was in, I was just interested to know whether for when you said that about changing yourself it's it's like it's something you want to be like you want to have one eye on but you can't yep. be too focused on it's like mm-hmm. a watched pot kind of thing. Totally. Yeah. And and it's and it gets overwhelming and that was that's something that I I've, I've talked about and I've written about like that you know <clears throat> Chris is a very aggressive form of ALS and and you know, he has familial ALS. So we, we had a a fairly good idea of, of what it would look like. And I think because of that, the amount of pressure that you felt to like record every moment, make every moment documented, you know, my, my kids were quite little. And especially my daughter at that point, I was like, is she going to remember anything outside of what she sees? Like, is she going to have anything up here? That's not put there by the videos and stuff. And so there's that pressure. And I've written about how like that very quickly, that very quickly, that pressure will just destroy you because you cannot in a life where like two young kids where like, Chris is still working and you have all these things going on. Like you just cannot make everything a homework moment and trying to do it is so exhausting. Yeah. And it's also the best way I've learned to exit a moment to not be present is to think about what this means. And whether it yeah. can be the last of something. So that's a very, that's a, another very, you know, 
interesting element, like for parenting and a different thing, obviously, than, than you experienced because, you know, your mom experienced because you guys were older, but, but yeah. And I think yeah. that you have that instinct, right. To say like, no, no, come on. We got to make this count. We got to make it good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> got to be positive. And, yeah. That's, that's an insight for me because I think because we, my sister and I were older, we we were not worried at all about capturing anything because we, and I don't think we ever articulated this, but one, one thing that's great in retrospect is that now we have stories to tell that everyone can have their own perspective on and input in. So like at family gatherings, we could tell the story again. And there's something pure about the telling of it as you're sitting around drinking some beers versus playing something. Mm-hmm. But, but that's a, that's a, that's a, a benefit we had because we were older. So we could, we could kind of, we could do it that kind of like lore, right? It's, it's almost yeah. like now we have dad lore, yeah. which yeah. you don't have the benefit of that when your children are very little, they can't, they can't, well, they can still probably to some degree, but if they were a little bit older, they could like take part in the lore part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing that we were able to have. Yeah, completely. Absolutely. I think my favorite part of the book, and this probably speaks to my, my mom, my mom relatability again, was when you guys were having that conversation and you thanked him just for being your dad and the kind of dad that he was. And what you wrote that he said was, I'm not sure I deserve that much credit. It wasn't a sacrifice to spend time with you. I really liked you. I could like just cry reading that. Um, I wondered what that was like for you to hear. I think in, I think in the context of the moment, it became way more powerful for me because I had no question about the fact that my dad thought I was awesome and amazing and cool and fun before that conversation. But there's something different when you've also then just said all the worst things you've done to him, you know? the, all of the things that you wish you hadn't said or written down. Like I, I only slightly alluded to it, but I, I wrote, I wrote him an email that was like scathing one time. Cause I was so angry about certain things. And then it, and it pained me that he could revisit it. Not that he would, right. but that he could. And that if you say something awful to someone, you can kind of over the course of time, just like make it a little bit nicer than it was. Whereas if you've written that thing down, you're like, "Mm, I'm never going to be able to, to morph that to something it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that, I think when, when you've, when you've expressed and out on the table is I was an asshole in these ways. And I disappointed you in these ways. And someone's response in the, all of those same moments is I really like you. Not, I love you but I really love yeah, you. That's totally different. That's different. It's, totally it's like different. your dad's job to love you. There's yeah. no guarantee that he was going to like you. No. And the fact that he, he was saying that after we had everything on the table and we kicked everything up and it was the perfect moment. And it's so funny. It's a small distinction. I'm glad you caught it. Cause it was the perfect moment to just wrap me in a hug and say like, I love you, which is one thing. And that's great. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he just looked at me, didn't, wasn't trying to make it some like hallmark thing was just like, kid, I really, really liked you. I just like, I, yeah. Yeah. It was nice to know that he, cause I really, really liked him. 
Yeah. Oh, man, yeah. That's awesome. And at the same time, there were a lot of hard days ahead for you guys at that point. And, and so yeah. we talked about it not being that moment that everything just changes. Was there a shift for you guys after that conversation though? Did things feel easier? There was more, there was definitely more intimacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there was more touching. There was more lingering. There was more time spent without having to fill it with something. Yeah. Um, but it didn't, it didn't take away. It it didn't take away his fear of death. It didn't take no. away his panic. It didn't, you know, it, no. it didn't change that, that structure of your, you have this disease, it's not stopping. And we have, we have to, we have to face the impact of your disease on us as well as the impact of it on, on you. I think it made, I hope it made him have some, I think, I think it gave him some level of peace, but I don't think he recognized it until the final days Mm. until then it, until then it seemed to fuel him to want to make every decision to prolong life and stay with us as long as possible. Because it was like, look at this. It's the beauty of the relationship that I thought we had. And now yeah, we had it not just me, yeah. but, but with like a lot of things around him. And then once we hit that barrier of we can't keep doing this, I think it, then it brought him a kind of solace and peace, or at least that's what I tell myself when I project onto it. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Well, that's all you can, I mean, really, you do what you do. I gotta do. <laughs> right. Yeah, that way. yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I, I love this book for, for so many reasons. And one of them is, is because it's first and foremost, a story about you and your dad. And one of the things that I have, a, I have, I have, that I have a lot of passion about is how do we get people to care about this disease? And I think because a lot of people don't have a personal connection to it, they don't aren't invested in it. And I don't fault people for that. Like before, you and I had a personal connection. We weren't invested in this disease either. And I think we've seen with COVID and, you know, also we saw with HIV, like the more people care about something, the faster it's going to get figured out. And so for me, the reason why I do this podcast, the reason why I have a blog, the reason why I tweet about how we're doing is because I, I want to offer up my family as the personal connection, be personally invested in my family care about this disease because now you're connected to us. Um, because I think that that we need numbers, right. And, and, Mm -hmm. um, I think you're probably pretty similar in that way. I think I have a sense of responsibility around the idea that we have a different platform just because Chris, you know, Chris works for the flames. And so we've been given this different platform, you know, a lot of people who are ALS advocates are fighting for space fighting for their voice to be heard. And I don't have to fight as hard as a lot of people. And I wondered if you could just speak to that um, in regards to your own advocacy. Yeah. Well, I'm going to try and make a a parallel here. And I, and I think it'll work is that lower, lower stakes, but important in our culture, I think is valuing female athletes and women's sports. And one thing I think that is always it has always uh, struggled with is getting that cool factor, the mm-hmm. cultural cool factor. I call it cultural cachet. We can call it whatever you want. And you, you know, anyone paying attention to that world over the last couple of years has seen small little movements where someone like a LeBron James wearing the WNBA hoodie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm, all of a sudden it's like he carries so much cultural cachet. And so it's kind of rubbing off now. 
And, and now it's not a thing that happens over here in the corner for, you know, like whatever small, tiny group who isn't cool is going to watch the WNBA, let's say. Now it's, oh, wait, if LeBron thinks that's cool, maybe it's cool. And I think one thing I've noticed um, about ALS over the, over the years, historically, I mean, there's anyone who has been in, you know, Kelsey, you know, this stuff intimately, anyone who's been touched by the disease and affected by it knows that part of the part of the issue in, in growing awareness is that people are dying from it so quickly. And there's no survivors group to then be advocating in the way so many diseases have. So you've got, and then you've got that third piece, which is at least, and this was true of my dad, is that not that many people who have ALS want to be the poster child for ALS. Because it so so many people don't see themselves like they used to see themselves before they had the disease, and my dad, one thing that that upset me so deeply was someone who I thought someone who I thought sense of self was as unmalleable a word. It was unshakable. Mm-hmm. It this disease shook his sense of self so deeply, and so you've got that trifecta of people are dying too quickly. This, there is no survivor group to rally. And then the third piece that people who do have it, not a huge percentage want to be out there and be defined by it. Be, so take all of that together. And you've got this, you've got ALS where it's like, how do you get people to care to understand what it is? How do you, and I know it shouldn't matter, but how do you get the cool factor? Well, it matters. And it does, it matters so much. And so mm-hmm. part of what even, you know, what, what Tom Haberstrow and I, when we went on the Levitard show, which is like this old ESPN show, like one thing we were even saying to ourselves behind the scenes was like, wow, not just have we gotten some money raised, which is crucial, but we've gotten some cultural cachet. Yes, totally. And, and I like, read all those comments underneath the, the videos of you guys. Cause if you, for people who don't know, like you ate the, you ate the world's hottest pepper last week, right? That's right. We did. We did. And I'm live oh. to tell about it, but barely. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe that you chose to do it after you knew what had happened to Tom. <laughs> Thank you, Kelsey. Thank you. <laughs> like that the was level a real of strength. Commitment. Yeah. No, but anyway, and the, and the whole notion was that you were raising money for IMALS, which is an organization that you and I both believe in very much. And, um, but one of the things that really struck me was that I was reading the comments underneath it. And it wasn't about like, it wasn't just all of the people that we know now on Twitter who are our ALS advocacy group. Like it was people who are like, you guys are like, it was cool. What you yeah. were doing was cool. And that makes a huge difference. Yeah. And same with you sharing your story with Chris. It's, it's so important because you guys are, a cool young couple. Oh, thank and you. <laughs> I mean, I don't know from afar who knows what it's well, like. Thanks. I'll take it. I life. will take it. <laughs> you know, the perception from the outside is, and that stuff really matters because there's this world who, when they even think of ALS at all, they think, oh, that's happening to, you know, 85 year old yeah. men or whatever. And it's like, well, you know, it's, it's that disease over there rather than saying, no, I, I this is a bit of a, uh, like a, a thought experiment to me. And I'm not sure I have my answer, but I'm like, do we, yes, cancer affects a majority of people, 
Mm-hmm. And so we need to figure, you know, we need to be pouring resources to that, understanding that. But but separately, do we want to live in a world where you could be struck with a disease like ALS that's 100% fatal and the most devastating effects? Mm-hmm. Like that, I mean, these are, that is like, to me, we have to, we have to ask ourselves is like, is it okay to just ignore that? just because it's happening to one in, you know, sometimes there's argument over the numbers, but I'm going to believe IMALS's numbers, like one in 300 people over the course of a lifetime might get this disease. And when, if you get it as of right now, and I know the familial um, gene is different, but like, there is no daylight on the outcome. No, no. 100% fatal with devastating symptoms. Like I don't want to live in a world where that disease exists. It, and I think that we have to like being able to shift the public mindset on, yes, it's a smaller group of people, but we can't let the capitalistic pursuits of like, well, if we pour X resources and it's only helping Y people, then that's not a good monetary outcome. Like, no, but I just want to avoid that that disease exists in the world because that's terrifying to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that you mentioned about um, it being hard for patients to be the poster child is really true. And um, as a personal pride thing, like I, I can't express how proud I was of Chris when he did the, so he went on the ESPN broadcast of the Red Sox and Astros game on, on Luke Gehrig day. And, you know, Chris, Chris, like, I think his, the biggest part of his self-identity was kind of wrapped up in his smile. Like that was what his family always talked about. They called him Guy Smiley when he was little. He has had a beautiful, huge smile. He smiled easily. You know, there was always like those dudes in professional sports who like don't smile Mm -hmm. for their headshot. Chris always had this huge smile on his face and he can't smile at all. Like not only can he not smile, he cannot make a single facial expression. He can't look surprised. He can't look sad. He can't look any way. And, um, and because he's like lost um, a lot of muscle in his soft palate, he also has a harder time speaking to be understood when he's standing up. But when he lies down, we've learned <laughs> that the gravity isn't working on that soft palate. And so, so he can speak better. And so, you know, the fact that he went on, went on ESPN for, it ended up being an entire inning because they were going to have him on for a half and then asked him to stay. He was lying down on our bed, you know, he can't move his face. He can't move his lips. And, and he thought right away, well, maybe they can just put a picture of me and I can just talk so I can be lying down. And I was like, I think it's important for people to see you. And that was hard for him. And he, you know, he crushed it and, and it, it matters. Like that's the stuff that matters. And, and especially for somebody like Chris, who, you know, he was a pretty public person. And before he worked in, in hockey, he was a journalist and he covered the Red Sox. And so, you know, I went on Nesson on that, on Lou Gehrig day, and they're showing clips of him when he was doing pregame, you know, Red Sox TV with Nesson and to be able for people to be able to watch somebody lose things like that is so, is such a powerful thing. And it's hard because I don't fault anybody for any reaction they have to this disease. If you want to just like go internal, absolutely. Like it's brutal and you have to get through it however you need to get through it. But the more people do what, you know, Brian Wallach is doing, what Steve Gleason is doing, what a number of, of people who participated in Lou Gehrig Day are doing and what Chris are doing, you know, the better off I think in the long run, and this has taken a very wide advocacy turn, <laughs> which I kind of figured. And I think that's okay, right? I mean, yeah, I, yeah it has to be okay. <laughs> it has to be um, because exa- what you were saying is 
is so important. And I think so many people would have made that. And I, and I totally understand Chris's wanting that decision. If you told me I could put a picture, the perfect picture of me up on anything and let me talk behind it, right? So you don't have to worry about, like, that's the thing that all humanity wants. And then you add on to it this, you know, and I, I'm, I'm speaking specifically on, on how I saw my dad go through it. He didn't think that was him anymore. My dad mm-hmm. and thought, he like and I, and I wrote this in the book. He said many times, like I'm a loser now, and that was incredibly hard for us to deal with. But I don't think that's a unique position that he was holding when some with someone dealing with ALS, because you you know as he would say, you you end up be relying on people around you and your sense of self if it's coming at all. And it and who in this world has a sense of self that is 100% constructed internally without any outside Nobody. variables? Zero people. Nobody. nobody. So, but being able to acknowledge that is really challenging because we have this cultural perception that like, you know, end of life, you should be able to reach some sort of Zen state and not care about the frivolous. And that's a huge impact when it comes to ALS is, um, is being able to, because if, sorry, and this is kind of wandering, but if, if Chris had just used the picture, then anyone who was watching that broadcast then wouldn't know the physical effects of the disease. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And every little step like that matters. And it matters for setting the future of what the next, you know, generation of ALS advocates do and feel comfortable doing because yeah. they've seen other people do it and not having to break through all those barriers and like do that on top of living mm-hmm. with the disease at the same time. So, but you're right. Yeah. It did take a hard advocacy that's, turn. That's okay. That's, <laughs> I like it. I'm here for it. But, but, you know, that was something that, that really kind of stood out to me in the book too, was that I think there was a part where your dad said like, I don't even have a wallet. I can't, I don't even have a wallet anymore. And the, the, the loss of, of your independence from like the big things that we all think of to the little things that like, I don't have keys. I don't have a wallet. I don't have anything that I, that is just mine anymore mm-hmm. is, is something that I don't think that people really understand about the disease. And, and so what I really appreciated from an advocacy perspective with your book is that it gets people committed to your story because it's so relatable. And then you are so honest about what this looks like. And that was really important. And, and while you said like, you kind of, you know, you come in and you, you would, you would spend a week sleeping next to your dad or not sleeping next to your dad so that your mom could sleep for a week. And those weeks were really hard on you. Um, and I imagine for a number of reasons, right? Like it was exhausting because it's constant. Okay. The notion as small as the notion is that like you're, you can't adjust your pillow. Mm. That's mm-hmm. what people need to understand. Like to be like, it's one thing to say like, Oh, your muscles atrophy and then you're paralyzed. And, <laughs> but like, think about that. You can't move your fucking pillow. <laughs> It's crazy. Like, I think when you were saying that about the wallet, the one thing I think every day, every day, I mean, I think about my dad a lot during the day, but you know, when you're getting into bed and you put the pillow and you like press into the pillow and then it's not quite right. And then you, you like, you, I mean, you, everyone knows what I'm talking about. It's more of a visual thing I'm doing right now, but you can imagine the smushing of the pillow. Yeah. Like just, if everyone can just hold on to that idea, think about Next time you're doing that, think about how many movements you have to make to get the pillow at the proper depth and the, mm-hmm. the proper smushing. Mm-hmm. 
it's probably 30 to 35 oh, totally. movements. Yeah, right? Yeah. And my dad and so many people living with this disease, like I, I thought all the time, how bad must the, an urge to move be for him to call me over? Right. The level of forti- internal fortitude that he must have had to wait, to wait, to wake me up, to do something. It just, it must've, I'm hoping, right. Or maybe he just woke me up anytime he wanted anything. Although I remember when he left for college, wake up, Kate. (laughs) Yeah. Wake up. Um, but it's like, if, if you can get people to really live in those details and you know, this as a fellow writer, we can say all day, the lung is a muscle. The heart is a muscle. These -hmm. things shut down, but it's like, no, no, no. Think about, think about how many movements you make just to get your pillow, Mm -hmm. the waistband on your pants. Oh yeah. Very specific feeling that everyone wants for the waistband on their pants Mm -hmm. and not having any control over that. Just, these are the, these are the tiny intimate details that, that I think illuminate the whole of this, of this disease and what not only the people living with it, but living with someone they love living with it experience. Absolutely. Like I I'm horrible at meditating and I try, but I'm not very good at it, but I still try. But that's the other thing. Like imagine that your whole life is a giant meditation and you can't scratch any itch and you can't readjust yourself no matter. It's horrible to think about, right? Yeah. And, and they, the people who meditate a lot, if they really, if they go to these like month long meditations, yeah. right. They say you can reach a stage where you realize that every pain, every sensation isn't real. It's just mm-hmm. a signal in your brain that you can quiet. These are people who are talk, like transcendental meditation yeah. for years and years and years and years. And at the very end of a month long retreat, you might reach a few minutes where you can touch the fact that sensations aren't real. Yeah. That's the level that you have to, to yes. reach. And, but the practice of being inside those moments every single day, I, I don't know. And I, and I, and I, I don't think anyone can comprehend what no. that must be like internally. Yeah. And on top of that, like you didn't choose to go to this meditation retreat. <laughs> like <laughs> that's definitely not <laughs> like your the yeah. end result is not that you get to go, you know, go get a poke bowl or something. Like <laughs> you got but <laughs> <laughs> right, the end result isn't crashing back into Vegas for an all nighter. Right. Like you that's yeah, absolutely. No. Um I wanted to talk more about your choice to make your decision to finally leave um ESPN. For people listening, like you, you really rose the ranks pretty quickly at ESPN and you were on a lot of, like you were on around the, right around the horn and outside the lines. And you had, did you have a radio show? Like you had, you had done some things and you are a very good writer. And, um, but I just feel like there was this, there's this amount of pressure and I'm sure it's in a lot of industries, but in sports journalism, like there's so many people who want to do that job. And you always feel this pressure of like, if I let, if I, if I loosen my grip, even for a second it's going to be gone. And then what? Right. So I just kind of wondered, you know, now that you can look back on it, what was bothering you about your job? I think the overall experience of being in a big company that wears anyone in a big company down mm-hmm. the bureaucracy. All, I mean, those, those things I think are universal across like big blue chip companies Yeah, that ESPN, even though the forward facing brand is baseball games, basketball games, rah, rah, fun Mm -hmm. behind the scenes. It's a big company with the same 
bullshit bureaucracy as anywhere else. And I think that anyone who's been in a big company knows there's wear and tear on humans in big companies. So there's that. Mm -hmm. There was a, there was a lot of other smaller things though. One was, and this kind of gets back to earlier, my, my bringing up the female athletes in women's sports, no matter what industry you're in, whether it's sports journalism, or if you're like, get to be an actor or a singer, you reach a point as you get older where you want the thing that you're doing to be about something bigger. Mm-hmm. And at least that's the person I am and, and always have been. And I think that a lot of people can relate to that. There yeah. are people who, who might get into something and like, they just love how fun it is. And they, they don't need anything bigger because they may have other things on the sides that they do. And they don't need that to collide in their job. Mm-hmm. But I, I was someone who did. and. I, when I first started at ESPN, I wanted to be about something. And I remember telling myself that every time I went on this adorably, wonderfully silly show called Around the Horn, where someone quote unquote wins Mm -hmm. and you get 30 seconds of uninterrupted time at the end of the show, if you've won the show to talk about whatever you want to talk about, that I would always talk about female athletes and women's sports because the numbers of percentage of time given to female athletes is all the data is like two to 4% of all airtime given to female athletes. So I have my little bit of motivation and I'm going to be about this bigger thing. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to give my LeBron James opinion, which floats off into the ether and affects nothing and nobody, but it's all good because at the end I get to maybe alter the prism of what we care about in the sports landscape. That was really great for about six months Mm -hmm. until I got really worn down by it because the feedback on Twitter would be no, you know, not, I'm not kidding. It would be like, shut the F up about female athletes. Like we don't even want you to win the show. And this isn't everybody, but you still absorb this stuff. Totally. And then internally at ESPN fighting for women's sports and female athletes in production meetings was a heavy lift. No one wanted to have them on air. And it just got so long story short of saying it got to a point where I was like, I can make more money and be more relevant just talking about LeBron James, Mm -hmm. or I can make less money and be less relevant and hold on to my, 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 you know, my pet project of meaning. Mm -hmm. And I decided to let it go for a couple of years. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to, I'll make the money that they're offering. Mm -hmm. I'll go on the shows and talk about whatever. Mm -hmm. And that can be okay until something smacks you in the face. I think it was always there, but I think my dad's diagnosis was like, time, you know, this is so cliche, but I was like, stop. It was like, stop wasting time. Yeah. Stop mm-hmm. doing things just because you get, you get these fleeting senses of value. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, a, it was that collision of all of that, the bureaucracy, me, me letting go of what I, of meaning in my job. And then my dad's diagnosis saying, you can't be doing things that are meaningless to you for very long because you, you might not have that much time. So mm-hmm. that, of course, then two years later, I finally left. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, before, right before I read all the colors came out, I read what made Maddie run. And, mm-hmm. um, it was, I mean, it's a beautiful book and I thought you did a really wonderful job on something that's very hard to talk about. My mother-in-law died of suicide when my son was six months old. And, um, 
you know, I would say that it's even something like we, we, we mention it when we're talking about our family. Um, but it's not something that, that we talk about really outside of that. It's a hard thing to talk about. Yeah. And, um, and certainly a hard thing to write about somebody else's personal story, but from what I could gather, you, you were writing that book when you, when your dad got sick, right? Yeah. The, the very, I think I might've finished the draft, but certainly putting it out, he'd been diagnosed the very end of it. And then when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. So I just thought about like, that has a lot of heavy stuff that you were dealing with all at one time and what that was like. So yeah, you're the first person to ever like combine the two into like this one, probably six month period of time that was both finishing a book about suicide and then my dad's diagnosis. Yeah. And the interesting thing about the collision of what from the outside seems like heavy things was that the book about Maddie and being a part of like the Holleran's life and putting that book out never felt heavy to me mm. because so many people in my life started to be more honest with me about themselves mm. and more honest about what their real experience of life was in a way that I don't think if I had been writing that book or told that story, anyone would have felt comfortable telling me. So, so there's that one side that now people in my life who I'm close to, but not that close to feel comfortable telling me that when they wake up in the morning, they don't want to get out of bed or that, you know, maybe that they have a bipolar diagnosis or that they Mm -hmm. struggle with depression. So that didn't have the effect of weighing down on me. It had the effect of bringing me closer to people now. So it wasn't actually the combo punch that it seems like, cause that was actually making me feel more human. Yeah. But the, the first six months of my dad's diagnosis were a gut punch. And, yeah. and you know, this you've lived, you've lived through just the, it, yeah. well, it was probably less for Chris because it was genetic. Yeah. We weren't, um, we didn't deal with the denial. I think you guys dealt with a lot of denial and we didn't have yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, but I think both experiences, um, the writing the Maddie book and really getting close to that story and understanding what suicide looked like in Maddie's story, and then my dad in his ALS. I mean, he might be, you know, up there wherever he is, like not believing what I'm about to say, but <laughs> because it, he's the one who lived through it. But yeah. both of them had the effect of making me a better person. Yeah. And that's a selfish thing that I got from both of those experiences. Yep. And it mm-hmm. kind of goes back to your earlier of saying, like, you want to make sure whatever, whatever your phrasing was that, like, you are changed by the experience mm-hmm. in whatever way you're supposed to be. Yeah. I, those experiences for me, whether I was kind of trying to be changed or just let the change yep. happen, made me closer to what I think we whatever it means to be closer to humanity and closer to what this experience is supposed to feel like. Yeah, definitely. I think that like, I can relate to that in the sense that when I started that, when I said I was telling friends that I wanted to start this podcast and that what I ultimately wanted to do was kind of tell our story and then take breaks from our story and tell other people's stories. You know, a lot of my friends were like, just be careful. Like that's going to be a lot, you know, and don't, don't, don't get kind of sucked under by that, by other people's sadness and, and I would say that in my experience has been the exact same as yours in that way that like, I never feel, I don't, I, it makes me feel better to talk to people about these things, yeah. not worse. 
I think it's just the sense of like community in that we're all dealing with these things and it's so much harder if we're not talking about them. And so whether it's sad and it's hard to have these conversations, because sometimes they are really hard to have. Ultimately, I feel better after having them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more in that even when it came to my dad's ALS diagnosis and then once he had died, there was there'd be one category of people in my life who would never ask about him. Mm-hmm. or not want to talk about how he had died or what that moment had felt like. And I was desperate to talk. I mean, I wrote a book about it because I wanted mm-hmm. to talk about it so much. And I think that there could be a, a parallel to make between, you know, and this is coming from a very good place when people are like, you know, well, don't don't live in that sadness yeah. and don't just constantly be talking to people who are similarly struggling with things because like you don't want to get caught in that. But mm-hmm. I just think it's, there no matter what. So, and talking about it and asking about someone and asking about a a death or what the process is like, I've always found, and and this could be, this could be different for some people, but most people want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know I wanted to, and when certain people would not mention the fact that my dad had died, I would get angry. Yeah. I I was like, we're going to pretend this didn't happen. Yeah. You don't have any questions. You don't like, you don't even want to bring it up. I'm like, that's about you. Yeah. Oh, totally. Don't do that. Don't do that for me. Yeah. And don't tell me that you're trying to not make it awkward for me. You're trying to not make it awkward for you. (laughs) That's about you. Yeah. That's how I always felt. Well, in the aftermath of this, I'm sure I was one of those people 10 years ago. You know, I was like, yeah, yeah. "Mm, I don't want to, but this definitely taught me that like talking about these things is the, is the primary way of working through them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really thank you for, for talking to me. Um, I really loved talking to you and I really, really thank you for writing this book and for all that it will continue to do for, for, for this cause. Kelsey, thank you. I'm sorry that I had to hop in the car. Not that you want to do a part two, but if you do down the road, I'm here for you because I, I would love it. I love, um, I love talking to you and thank you for reading the book so carefully. It, it, It means a lot. Yeah, I hope, you know, I can't wait for your next one because one thing that's obvious is that you choose really important stories to tell. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, we'll talk soon. Well, it didn't take me long to take Kate up on that offer of another conversation. Like I said in the intro, I'll be back next week with a bonus episode of our second conversation about all the colors came out, about the relentlessness of ALS and about being in this fight to end ALS for the long haul. As I said in our conversation, reading Kate's book was so relatable for me on many levels. But with Father's Day coming up on Sunday, it really made me think about my dad and all our games of 21 in the driveway before he even went inside to shower after a long day in the field. I don't get to see my dad on Father's Day. My parents live in the States and I live in Canada, so I haven't seen them in more than a year. I thought since I can't give him a hug on Sunday, I would end today's episode by reading something I wrote about him a long time ago. Here it is. My second year of college, a friend told me, I don't think homesickness is something God wants to take away. A few weeks before, my grandpa had passed away and left me longing for a place that was more safe and familiar than my college dorm room. I drove home to Arlington, South Dakota and did something I hadn't done for years. I went hunting with my dad. Only this time, for the first time, I carried a gun. The day was brisk, to say the least. The rush is tall, and at times I couldn't feel my fingers, but I didn't complain mostly because I didn't really notice, and also because there was no way I was going to let my dad know. 
It was one of those days you want to stop, to freeze, to do anything to hold off that five o'clock sunset even a few minutes more. We walked through what seemed like miles of brown landscape, barren in its midwinter sleep. We idled slowly through each country mile, down dirt roads I knew so well. I asked the same questions I always had. My dad answered anyway. He sat in that same spot in the pickup, the same mannerisms coming from his side of the cab, telling the stories I knew so well but couldn't wait to hear again. He knew I knew those stories, but it seemed, as much as I wanted to hear them again, he wanted, just one more time, to tell them. As he spoke, I scanned the fields and the farms, the silos and the grain bins, the cows huddled together, frost stuck thick to their noses and around their mouths. I tried hopelessly to get my mind around the fact that he'd spent his entire 58 years in these fields, on that farm, in this two-road town. I used to be my dad's girl. He is the center of countless childhood memories. But as I got older, our crop checks and road hunts happened less and less. I suppose it was natural, but even now, especially on Father's Day, not one second passes that I don't long to be back in that place, my place, next to him in the pickup. It seems so simple, but there I'm nestled deep into the safest spot I've ever known, a crew cab pickup taking me to the deepest part of my dad's eternally expansive heart. We missed about six pheasants that day. At ten to five, as the sun kissed the snow-packed horizon, we got our first bird. We shot at the same time, our yellow lab disappearing into the rush as the pheasant tumbled from the sky. We didn't know who hit it. When he cleaned the bird, Dad found two different-sized BBs lodged into the bird's chest. He chuckled. I didn't get it. He looked at me and explained, We both hit it, Kels. I sat on the tailgate, coveralls around my waist, hiking boots muddied from sloughs not quite frozen solid, legs swinging above the machine shed's simple dirt floor, and watched my dad, all hands and heavy brown eyes, clean that pheasant. Another first he guided me through, one of so many he refused to miss, no matter what it meant he had to give up. My first steps, the first time I rode a bike, shot a basketball, swung a bat, sang a solo, starred in a play, no matter that he'd slip away at the curtain call or the final buzzer and head back to the fields, he was there, by my side, in the audience. I didn't have to wonder. After walking most of the day, we spent our last hour road hunting. We drove to the edge of Dad's land, the land he bought from his dad. He stopped the pickup on top of that same hill. You can see the whole farm from there. I knew this place. I used to run through these trees in the spring, picking wild asparagus, searching for that lone plum tree that grew the sweetest fruit I had ever tasted. The engine idled. My dad turned the key. And for a moment, there was silence. Chills ran up my arms. I knew my dad used to sit where I am now, my grandpa in the spot my dad now owns. Then and now, the story is the same. When I was growing up, my dad said, your grandpa would stop right here during every crop check. He would pull into this spot, turn off the engine, and say to me, I remember when this farm was for sale. The banker took your mom and me right here. I looked out over this land, turned to mom, and said, yep, this is going to be a good little farm. The chills lingered. The simple story was far from new, but had never meant more. The moment had to end. If not, I might have burst. Slowly, Dad turned the key and backed up. The pickup jerked and bounced as we passed the sign that for my whole life had gone ignored. Bright yellow, it dared us. Minimum maintenance road. Travel at your own risk. This story was always, always worth the risk. We headed west, 
driving aimlessly through the South Dakota countryside, so flat and unassuming you'd think the word peaceful was born right here, before coming into the tiny town of Badger. Just two roads, the two-room school where my dad learned his times tables, and a tiny Lutheran church, the silver steeple that my dad had painted, glinting in the dropping sun. I hadn't been here since the funeral, and I knew what was ahead. Dad did, too. His foot eased on the brake as we pierced the outskirts of town, and suddenly, long before I was ready, there it was. My grandpa's grave, not even a month old. My throat tightened and my eyes burned as we passed the frozen pile of fresh black dirt. The sting of reality was still just too fresh. Dad looked at me, my cheeks wet with heavy tears, reached across the seat, his huge hand perfectly containing mine, and said softly and simply, It doesn't seem possible, does it? I tried to push back the sobs, but managed nothing more than a broken, no. Homesickness. It was always something I struggled with. I used to pray that it would go away, that my heart wouldn't long so for my little prairie town. But that day, as I walked through the fields, wind biting at my cheeks, nose running and fingers numb, I looked ahead at my dad, striding long and tall through the rushes, and prayed my friend was right. Please, God, never let this feeling go away. This past week, my parents moved out of my childhood home. I loved everything about that house, about that place, and I have felt a bit untethered by the fact that they don't live there anymore, and that because of COVID, I didn't get to go home and say goodbye to that house. And so even though I am 37 years old, I am feeling that same homesickness again that I did all those years ago when I wrote that piece I just read. I know my dad can relate, and I know that because my parents sold the place I grew up to move back to the place my dad grew up. He was 58 years old when I wrote that piece. He is 75 now. And he has spent his entire adult life being homesick for the farm. Finally, he's back. My grandpa was right. It sure has been a good little farm. And I know that wherever grandpa is, he's so happy right now to see my dad back there. Happy Father's Day, Dad. I love you. And I'm so grateful you are here so I can tell you that. I can't wait to see you at the farm soon. The past is now.